Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Abraham built two altars and the importance of his decisions to build them. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. All right, good morning. <laughs> okay, good. So, uh, all right, if you'd like to open in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, we'll get ready to uh, start our, our study this morning, and uh, we'll get everything all under control. There we go. All right, let's pray. Father, lead us. We pray like you led Abraham. Lord, lead us this morning as we open and study a word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, Genesis chapter 12, beginning now, verse 1. And uh, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and all the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land, and, they, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from hence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, Nai on the east. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Now, in our last study, you remember how we, we looked at verses 7 and 8, very important verses 7 and 8 together, where it says the Lord appeared to Abraham and made this great promise, the great, what was the great promise? That he would give this land to his seed. And so what did he do? He builds an altar there, he appeared to him, and then he goes on to the mountain and and he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. When he was down there in verse 7 in the plain of Moreh, something amazing happened to Abraham. It's stated in the verse. What was it? What was the thing? Amazing thing happened. What was the amazing thing in verse 7 that happened to him? It's not a trick question. It's very simple. It just says it right there. What does it say? The Lord appeared to Abraham. It's a very, very important thing that happened there. The Lord appeared to Abraham. It's the first time we read that the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, you know, we look at this and we ask, well, who appeared to him? Well, you know, there's two very important words that we need to key into as we study the Old Testament, and those are the words Jehovah and Elohim. The King James translators make it very easy for us so we don't have to go back and see what the Hebrew says because whenever we see in the Old Testament the word God, small g, small o, small d, that's the word Elohim. So very easy. And whenever we see in the Old Testament the word Lord, all with capital letters, L-O-R-D, like we have here, that's the word Jehovah, or literally it's the word yod vav or Y-H-V-H. So there are no vowels given for this word in the Masoretic text as there are for all the other words. So it's unpronounceable, Y-H-V-H, 
and some people don't pronounce it, but we typically add the vowels uh, o, ah, so it comes out Yehovah or Jehovah. So when we see in the Old Testament this word L, capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's the word Jehovah. When we see the word God, G, capital G, small O, small D, that's the word Elohim. Elohim, as we, as, as you know, we've covered this before, Elohim is a plural word. So Elohim refers to the Trinity. It first refers to the three persons of the Godhead or the Trinity. Jehovah's not a plural word. So oftentimes I say, you, you know, Jehovah Jesus. Now that's not to say that every time Jehovah appears that it refers to Jesus. Because there are times in the Old Testament, clearly, where the word Jehovah is not referring to Jesus. Why? Because in Isaiah 53, when it talks about it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that's clearly referring to God the Father, and the word Jehovah is used there too. So maybe you find this confusing, that sometimes Jehovah is referring to Jesus, God the Son, or sometimes it's referring to God the Father. But that's the point behind the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the common way of saying the Shema is the way, in the way the Jewish people always say it, is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. But that's not correct, because the word Adonai does not appear in the Shema. In fact, the word Jehovah, and you look in Deuteronomy 6.4 and you'll see the capital letters there. That's what's the word that's appearing in the Shema. So the correct way of saying the Shema is Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad, or Hero Israel, Jehovah is our gods. Jehovah is one. In other words, with our gods. So the Shema is the most famous verse used in the Bible for the Jewish people as a prayer. And the New Testament, the New Testament equivalent for the Shema is very simply John 10.30, where it says, where the Lord says, I and my Father are one. That's the New Testament equivalent for Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's it, there in John 10.30. Which, like the Shema, is affirming that Jehovah Jesus or God the Son, is one with the Eloheinu, with the Elohim, with our gods. Eloheinu is the, plural, is the possessive Elohim. So, so the Shema is affirming that Jehovah Jesus is a person in the three persons of the Elohim Godhead, and that all these three persons are perfectly in sync with each other. They're, they're together, they're united, they're one. And how ironic that the most repeated prayer of the Jewish people actually affirms the deity of the one that they despised and rejected. And the fact that all three persons in the Godhead are one, it gives us the explanation for why Jehovah and Elohim are seemingly used interchangeably. But in verse 7 of our text here, when it says that the Lord appeared to Abram, that's Jehovah. It says that. The Lord or Jehovah appeared to Abram. We know that that person, that Jehovah, that appeared to that appeared to Abraham was the Lord Jesus. How do we know that? Because he made it clear in John 1.18 when, when it said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, 
he hath declared him. So the Lord Jesus, we know, is the perfect reflection of the Father. That's what it says about him in Hebrews 1.3. He says he's the express image of God. You couldn't have a more perfect image of the Father than the Lord Jesus. The express image of his person. He's so much the express image of the Father that sometimes the Lord Jesus is called the Father. That's what happens. That's what happened in Isaiah 9, 6 when it says, for unto us a child is born. Who's that child? That's the child Jesus. Unto us a son is given. Who's that? That's God the Son. Uh, the same person. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So how could the child Jesus that was born, how could the eternal son that was given be called the everlasting father? You can't tell the difference. And that's what he said to Philip in John 14, 9, when he said, Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the father. So when we see in the Bible the Lord Jesus, we're seeing God the father. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the way, the only way to the Father from John 14, 6, but he reveals the Father. He reveals God the Father. He reveals God the Holy Spirit because they're all echad. They're all one. And the Elohim Trinity, they're united. How are they united? They're united not in their person because there's three persons, but they're united in their character, they're united in their purpose, and they're united in their work. So I'm speaking to you right now. So here I am speaking to you right now. I got a message I'm trying to communicate with you. Now, as I'm speaking to you, there are three parts of me that are involved in the communication of this message that I'm trying to tell you. First of all, my spirit has given birth, so to speak, to the message I'm trying to communicate. So you think of a, of a show, and, or whatever you want to call it. So the spirit is like the writer. It's like the writer, okay? So that's what he is. And then my soul has thought of how I'm going to communicate this message. So the soul is like the producer. And then my body is communicating this message, like the actor. Okay? So to make this happen, you need all three. You have to have the writer, you have to have the producer, you have to have the actor. So that's the spirit, the soul, and the body, right? All three parts are at work at the same time in the communication. So in a person... There's an echadness. There's an echadness between the spirit, the soul, and the body. So you can't say, well, there's a division in you. I don't think your soul's on board with <laughs> what you're saying, right? That's not a... <laughs> It's the same way with the echadness of the Elohim Trinity, right? All three, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, they're all engaged, and they're all working at the same time. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, why? To give the light of the knowledge of God, in the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what you see. So if we want to know who God the Father is, or what he's like, we look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, God the Holy Spirit, we look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Hebrews 1.3, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. 
So we know that when, Je- when Genesis 12, 7 is speaking and it says Jehovah appeared unto Abraham, that was Jehovah Jesus who appeared to Abraham. Now, Abraham was so amazed that God appeared to him. And what, is he, what did he do to memorialize that? He built an altar, right? He built an altar. And so we see how verse 7 puts it. It says, there, there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So we see that Abraham built an altar to the Lord because the Lord appeared to him. And we see in verse 7 that very important word there, which emphasizes how Abraham wanted so much to mark the place where God appeared to him. Abraham wanted to never forget how God appeared to him there, that he wanted that there should be a memorial. So there he builds an altar to the Lord. And that's why the word there is so important in verse 7, because it shows the place where God appeared to him. And that's the place where he built the altar, the exact place. So now we look in verse 8, and we see again the word there, because Abraham's marking another place. Now it's up in the mountain. And Abraham has a new altar. And so again, we see him marking the very important place. And again, it's all about the there. And he builds this new altar there, because right there, something very important happened to him. What happened there? He called on the name of the Lord. So the first altar was where something was done to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. The second altar was where Abraham did something. He called on the name of the Lord. See, God revealed himself to Abraham, and God gave the promise of the land to Abraham, and then he built the first altar. See, God did something. He appeared to Abraham And so Abraham built that first altar. God did that to Abraham. Then Abraham responds, and he calls on the name of the Lord, and then he builds an altar there. So Abraham did something. See, he called on the name of the Lord. And where that happened, Abraham memorializes and says, we're going to build an altar here. We're going to build an altar here. God appeared to me. We're going to build an altar here. Then I called on the name of the Lord. So the key to understanding the relationship between these two verses, 7 and 8, these two altars, the first and second altar, is the word there because it shows that there God appeared to him, there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. The second there is where Abraham did something. In other words, this is a picture of, of how it's supposed to happen. This is Abraham responding. Dad, today you talked more about the altars that Abraham built, and you talked about what those altars were. But taking one step back, what can be said about the decision that Abraham made to build those altars? Well, David, that's a very good question. And that is one step back, because when we read in Genesis 12, 7 and 8, what we read there are these very important words where it says, about Abraham, there builded he an altar unto the Lord. That's verse 7. And then verse 8, it says, there he builded an altar unto the Lord. Those are very, very important statements because what they're doing is they are telling us that there Abraham made a decision to build an altar to the Lord. And it's that decision that Abraham made that really was who Abraham was. He was a man of the decision to build the altar. And really, you can say that about every person's life, that each person is made up of the decisions that they make in life. 
And that's how God views us. And when we get to this decision that Abraham made of building the altar, the application comes back to us because it's a challenge to us to also make the decision not to build a literal altar, but to build a figurative altar, so to speak, within our heart and to make the sacrifice. And the passage in the scripture that addresses that so directly is Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the passage that emphasizes the decision to build the altar for each believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, Paul is speaking here, and he starts off by saying, I beseech you. This, when he just starts off with these words, I beseech you, it's emphasizing that there is a choice to be made. And Paul is trying to persuade each believer to make the choice. It's the words of I beseech you. It's very similar. You know, we as believers, we beseech the lost to be saved. We beg them. We try to do everything we can to persuade them. That's the language of 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. What is it that we want as believers for the lost to do? To be reconciled to God. How will they be reconciled to God? If the lost person decides to be reconciled to God, they will be reconciled to God because the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what do we do with this great invitation that we know God is making to every lost person? We serve as ambassadors. We serve in the capacity of not a passive or complacent ambassador, but a very active ambassador who is, as the scripture says, we beseech the lost because God is beseeching the lost and God is beseeching the lost by us. And what we do when it says, we pray you in Christ said, we beg you, we persuade you, we do everything we can to convince you lost in the stead of Christ, in the position of Christ, to be reconciled to God. This is the language that Paul was using to describe what the saved do with relation to the lost in 2 Corinthians 5.20. This is the same language that Paul is using to the believers to make that decision that Abraham made to build the altar when he says, I beseech you, therefore... I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So again, he's not speaking to the lost. He's speaking to us as brethren. And he's begging us, and he says, therefore, therefore, what's the therefore? The therefore is very important because what the therefore is referring to is Romans 9, 10, 11, and also 8 for that matter. Well, the whole book of Romans. But when we just look at the immediate of what Paul has just been addressing in Romans 9, 10, 11, it's the Jewish people. I beseech you, therefore, by the history of the Jewish people. I beseech you, therefore, by the errors of the Jewish people. I beseech you, therefore, because they have despised and rejected that great salvation and missed out on all, for the most part, the Jewish people, speaking of, 
That's really the message of Romans 9, 10, 11. Based on that fact, I don't want you to miss out on the great opportunity that is there for you as believers. So looking at the mistake that they made, looking at the fact that they said to God, no, thank you very much, and had had turned their back on the great treasures that God had for them, ready for them to take, all because of their decision. Paul says, when you look at that, I beseech you, therefore, on that fact of all that they missed, because they said, no, brethren, don't make the same mistake. I beseech you, therefore, because by the mercies of God, because of the great treasure that God has, because of his great compassion, beseech what? That ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's saying, present your bodies, come to God like as to an altar. And instead of putting an animal on the altar, put yourself on the altar and say to God, my whole body, as in the whole burnt offering, my feet are yours today, Lord. My heart is yours today. My hands are yours today. My mind is yours today. My eyes, my ears, my mouth, they're all yours today, Lord. I present myself as a living sacrifice to God, just like Abraham did, building the altar. And I present myself not to go my own way, not to think my own thoughts, not to live my own life. I'm presenting myself unto God, holy, he says. In other words, I will that this whole body of mine will not be used for sin, just like what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So this is what he means when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, which is, after all, what you should do. And he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that she may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, he's saying, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world, as another translation has it, squeeze you into its mold. Don't go the way of the crowd. In other words, don't think the way of the world. Don't act the way of the world. Don't coast down the stream of this world. Because this world has a direction, and our minds have a direction, which is the totally opposite from God. So God says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is, when you think of this verse and you put it together with Isaiah 55, 7 through 11, it becomes clear. Because there God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he'll have mercy upon him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How are we going to forsake our way? How are we going to forsake our thoughts? And he says, he says, you have to do that because God says in Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. So we have a great divide 
The way we naturally think is not the way God thinks. The way we have in our life is not God's ways. And he says to him, he says, and he goes on in verse, dropping down to verse 11, Isaiah 55, he says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish which I please. So what does God want his word to accomplish? What pleases God? The renewing of our mind. It's the word of God that renews our mind. We need rehabilitation. And when a person is injured and he goes to be rehabilitated and our minds are injured and our our thinking ways, our thought ways are injured and we need rehabilitation, so we go to the Word of God. And that's what God uses to renew our mind. And what's the result of it? The result of it is that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, that we might get the prize. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Thank you for joining us today. Now don't forget this message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Also, we've gone into extra printing for Tom Cantor's latest book offering this month, Whosoever Will versus Fatalism. This book will help you to scripturally answer the questions, what is Calvinistic fatalism? And who can resist God's will to be saved? And what are chosen and changed children? And did God predestinate people to die and go to hell? This book will help show we are all faced with the personal crisis of obedience. Now to get this book, you can go to friendshipwithgod.org, click on the resources, and we've got an online bookstore of all of Tom Cantor's materials, many of them for free listening, viewing, and download. But if you'd like a copy of this brand new book, go to friendshipwithgod.org, click on our resources button, or call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org, and you can also fill out the online form for a free gift for a lost Jewish person to send today. friendshipwithgod.org.